0: Funding for The Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone-Peterson-Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report, your weekly political roundup. Additional support comes from State Street, produced by KUER. Hosts Sonia Hudson and Emily Means take a fresh look at politics, the Utah way. Get episodes wherever you listen to podcasts or at statestreetpod.org. Good evening, and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Dennis Romboy, editor and reporter for the Deseret News, Kate Bradshaw, member of the Bountiful City Council, and Max Roth, anchor and reporter with Fox 13 news so glad to have you with us this evening we just finished week five of the legislative session and I think we need to talk about a couple of the bills because some are quite impactful but of course uh, Kate we're gonna start with you because it all starts with the money Uh, uh, people don't regularly know that most of the time during the first part of the legislative session we're working on a budget but we don't know what the actual revenue numbers are so this is that special day where we see what can really be funded by the end of the legislative session so talk about that process for a moment
1: Sure. So you're absolutely right. We are working our way through the session and we don't yet know what those numbers are going to be until almost the end of the session. And um, what happens is we get the consensus revenue estimates. So this is when um, the staff from the governor's office, the staff from the legislature and the state tax commission meet and they agree to what these projections are, what we expect the state to capture in tax revenue over the next year. And until this point, we've kind of been guessing on what we think those numbers are. And so there's some base budgets that go through, but they really hold back um, the full budget, and they hold back any bills with significant fiscal impact until we know what those numbers are, and then they work fast and furious in these last two weeks to close to close the budget and hit those um, those projected revenues um, so that we know what we have to spend as a state going forward.
0: Mm-hmm. And some of these bills, uh, Max, they they hold till the end mm-hmm. so they can see how far they can get. But the legislature took some. Um, procedural steps ahead of time on this and set aside 930 million dollars to echo some of the priorities like for education for example Mm -hmm. was it was a big one employee compensation was a big one what do you make of the fact that they made those policy decisions
2: so early you know I mean they they have to they, they, they hit the ground running in terms of the appropriations process from the start every year but I think that I think this year they knew that they were going to have some positive numbers and they wanted to and they wanted to stake their claims to the important things and it always is going to be education as one of the big ones and and those folks who would like to see education spending increased want that on the table before anything else but uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how the numbers that we see here at the end of this week will change what's happened like I, I wonder Kate if you have any insight about the um, about the tax um, cut and if if the numbers that we see here because it looks like they're already going through pretty solidly
1: yeah so the legislature um, decided that they would pass through an income tax cut. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're dropping our rate, um, they added on uh, an uh, earned income tax credit as well. It's about just over a $200 million tax cut and they sent that through fast. And yeah. it's really interesting that they did that. Um, and I know that there were a lot of groups, for instance, like the Utah Taxpayers Association right. who wanted them to hold it so that we'd see these revenue projections and if they were really high, make that tax cut bigger. bigger. So it's interesting that they there was there was quite an effort to send that through early. It does mean you know, a tax cut for all of us, a little bit, mm-hmm. um, you know, just over uh, $120 that we might each see in terms of that income tax cut. Um, so there are some interesting discussions about whether there would be a- additional um, returns of revenue yeah. to residents through different tax mm-hmm. cuts or to businesses, or um, whether they'll then take what we think will be a- some really good revenue projections and put them into public education, into the Great Salt Lake, you know, is a Particular emphasis this year, or other types of programs. I think
3: you can argue about how you know how to spend and how to use that money. Tax cut, go to education, other social service programs. I think the bottom line is it shows that we do have a pretty healthy economy here in the state, um, despite the pandemic and everything that's going on, uh, supply chain issues and all of that. Um, Utah has weathered that uh, pretty well, and for the legislature to be able to have some some money to to put in certain places and, and extend a tax cut. It, I, it's really um, you know a kudos to them for being able
0: to do that kind yes, of thing uh, as we're talking about these tax cuts and, and kate mentioned too that you have an income tax you have some tax credits max one of the interesting things that people are talking about is is this is um, income tax is tied mm-hmm. to Public education, yep. and, and Utah's public education, higher education, and thanks to some voters in our, in our last election, also for some social service programs. Talk about the implications of that, because you start reducing income tax, you start maybe potentially yeah. hitting education
2: funding. Yeah, you, you definitely hit education funding, and, and it's um that that's been whittled away over the years anyway, because it wasn't always higher education as a part of it, and then as you mentioned, adding in some social services, and so the idea of putting that into the state constitution was was basically that Utah is a is a state. With a whole lot of kids, um, and it's hard to fund education when you when you have the youngest population in the United States, um, and by far. Um, and so it's uh, so the more that you split that up, and there's even the talk of rebranding the the legislature is talking about calling um, the income tax fund the income tax fund rather than the education fund, um, just so that people think about it differently. Um, you know, I mean, it's it is entirely possible to spend the same amount of money um even though you have different options and, and it could come from different piles but uh, it, it, what you say uh, and, and, and reflects your priorities, you know, and, and it seems like the, the, that that you wouldn't make those changes without having some intention of splitting the money. Mm-hmm. Talk about the implications of that, Dennis, uh, that change that Max was just talking about, because we're
0: so used to calling it the education fund. We know where the money goes. <coughs> As voters, we've heard about it for a while, but this is Jerry Stevenson who's saying maybe we shouldn't even be calling it the education fund anymore. It's called it the income tax fund.
3: It's still the education fund. I guess call it what you will, but with that kind of name on it income tax fund i think it does open the door to maybe find other uses for that money Um, maybe there's other constitutional amendment down the road to try to 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 splinter that off a little bit to other other issues other programs you know i don't know but 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 rebranding it income tax fund does change the, the the outlook for that in the future
1: You know, Jason, I think that speaks to um, kind of a a policy discussion we were having before the pandemic, you know, Mm, in the way before, um, where the state was talking about tax reform, very broad tax reform, and um, the fact that they felt like the, the, the pillars of our tax stool had become unbalanced between sales tax, income tax, and property tax and um, the ability to do things, it seemed like it was disproportionately falling on sales tax, you were seeing sales tax exemptions, sales tax credits, whereas anything in the income tax sector always faced this hurdle of, well, it's, it's about education, it's about the kids, but that was the pillar that was growing dramatically and growing faster than the sales tax fund in mm-hmm. um, uh, the general fund. And while they're both growing, you know, there was we were having this great debate before the pandemic, we obviously hit pause <laughs> on some of these discussions. It seems like with this with this bill and this effort to rebrand, it's signaling maybe we're coming back to some of those discussions broadly about how we structure our, our tax system, how we structure our budgets, and rebranding might be part of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Max, uh, implications of this uh, one more time into public education uh, found in a, a, a bill that's been been sponsored it's called the hope scholarship bill you know some, some people have some memories of vouchers or backpack funding or the scholarship talk about what's happening there and then I want to talk about whether or not
2: we think this will will pass well, it was, uh, it was here at KUED that the governor just yesterday said that he would uh, veto that bill. It mm-hmm. uh, was a surprise to a lot of people. I think it caused a lot of consternation uh, up on the hill. But it's uh, the, the HOPE scholarship bill, which uh, we generally refer to as a voucher bill because that's the way the broader public understands um, the the meaning of the government providing public education money to individual parents in order for their kids to get some form of private education. Um, it's uh, it, it looks like like it's uh it's doing well in the legislature but the governor's threat is is yeah. real and probably would um bring it to a close well dennis this is so yeah. interesting because we didn't expect the
0: governor particularly this early St- still have, we have some senate supports making its way through the house a bit but that's a pretty big gauntlet thrown yeah, down it'll be
3: rate. interesting to see um how much weight the governor carries on this issue um, i think it, it does have some uh, momentum in in the legislature it's just kind of hung up a little bit and it barely passed out of committee too. So, and I know that they're, they're trying to tweak the bill a little bit. Um, can they get a supermajority to pass it um, and then have this showdown with a possible veto? You know, I,
0: I don't know if it has that kind of uh, weight to to yeah. do that or not. So curious if we can get that veto-proof majority. But but Dennis, I'm kind of curious because uh, the state has dabbled with this in the past. Actually, passed a law that was overturned by by the people. Have things changed substantially uh, in the state of Utah, where maybe the public sentiment is more in favor of something like this?
3: It seems to be so. Um, it'd be interesting to do some some polling on that again and and find out really what the sentiment is. Um, the voices are loud about that, though, about having school choice, um, whether it's a, a minority or not, the, the voices are very loud on that
2: issue. This, uh, in, in looking at this issue, um, I, I, I dove into the statistics because I, I had the feeling growing up and living in Utah that we don't have a real culture of private education in Utah. So looking at the statistics, that's absolutely true. Utah, there are only two states that have fewer, uh, that have a lower proportion of students in private schools. Those two states are allowed and Wyoming. That makes complete sense because they're rural and so it just wouldn't make sense for private schools to pop up. Utah is a very urbanized state. We live in a densely populated area, the vast majority of Utahns. So... If there were a culture of private education, the population is there to support it, and there just is not. We are, though, a culture of charter education. Mm-hmm. We're one of the top states in terms of the percentage of students in charter schools. And so uh, it, it, sometimes it's, it's a little confusing to me why vouchers are such a big issue when where are the mm-hmm. kids going to go? Yeah. I mean, there, there's not a place. So, so
3: expensive, too, right? Yeah. I mean,
2: Um, With with the
3: number of kids that we have and a lot of families, I think it's hard to send your your child to private school. The the cost is enormous.
1: You know, one of the interesting components of this bill is is we talk a lot about vouchers going to private schools, but you could take this money under this bill and use it for um, homeschooling. And that is a significant Mm -hmm. change that wasn't envisioned when we had this debate earlier. Um, I did find the governor's comments very interesting. I'm, I'm the spouse of a public school teacher, um, so that system of education is near and dear to, to my heart, my family's heart. Um, and so his comments about uh, kind of what teachers have been through in the last two years um, and uh, kind of the, the, the stress we have placed on them and, you know, whether, um, whether to be a teacher is to labor in poverty for your whole career and to subtract money out of this system um, and send it to either a private school or to a homeschool setting where they're not going to necessarily have um, the, the, the numerous regulations and oversights and accountability that the public system has, while at the same time teachers are feeling mm-hmm. you know, very underappreciated and very stressed and overwhelmed, uh, it seemed like the governor was saying, you know, maybe there's a p- debate to have here, but is this the time to have it? And it, it's something that very much resonated in, in my home where public mm-hmm. education has been something that has been very hard. Uh, as a teacher for the last two yeah, years he made
3: it clear that he's a, he favors school choice but only when teachers salaries are increased um starting salaries at sixty thousand yeah, dollars i think he's is what he better. said you know then then that's the
0: time to have that conversation when when teachers are paid better one more thing on education
2: max all day kindergarten okay, okay we have a
0: bill mm-hmm. Representative waldrip
2: yeah yeah is this could happen I don't think so. No, I mean it's a, yeah, I, I, I really think it's about money. I don't. I don't uh-huh. think that. Uh, I mean all. all of the, uh, and there's also um, there. There's always been a side of the debate um, in all-day kindergarten that says, oh, we already surrender our kids to the system um, too completely, too young, and and this would just be moving that a year earlier. Um, but it's uh, but. It costs a whole lot more money to put kids in all-day kindergarten, um, even though uh, the any study that you look at says that it is a it is a good investment. That um, that all-day kindergarten, especially in areas uh, that are lower income where kids are more at risk, um, all-day kindergarten really helps them get a leg up. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: watch that one closely. I know money is starting to be set aside potentially for this as well. Um, Dennis, let, let's talk about a bill that we, we, we've been on the show a couple of times here on the death penalty. We've been talking about whether or not this was the year when it ends. The death penalty bill was up this week and didn't get out of committee. Talk about there because it was a very emotional hearing. Yeah, you had people on both sides, families who have dealt with,
3: um, have been victims of, of these heinous crimes over the years. They've had to go back to court years and years through appeals. Others who just want to get this over with and and have that person executed, the, the murderer. Um, so yeah, it was a very emotional hearing. You remember, like, I think four years ago, the House Speaker was in favor of abolishing the death penalty, and it didn't pass that year. This year, we have House leadership and I think Senate leadership opposed to it, uh, to abolishing the death penalty, and uh, it's not surprising to me that it's not going anywhere. It seemed like a couple years ago there was some momentum among Republicans nationwide to try to overturn death penalties uh, uh,
0: around the country, but I don't think that's there anymore. Okay, uh, we've had this discussion for a little while now. Uh, tell us what you're hearing, kind of behind the scenes on this bill. The committee didn't like it. Is it over? Uh, what might happen next?
1: You know, I think there's still some play in this issue. Um, it's clear that for some, there have been there's been this evolution of their thought process on it. Mm-hmm. Um, Representative Lowry Snow, who's who's the bill mm-hmm. sponsor, he's talked openly about his own kind of uh, personal journey from changing his policy view. Uh, to, to thinking we should do away with this, and his his legal career starting as a prosecutor, and and so I think you're seeing some some of that. I think we maybe because of the pandemic we took yeah. this two-year pause on the policy evolving, and I think the sponsors are, are are kind of aware of that. Obviously based on the committee outcome, and so I think probably what you'll see is is an effort to say okay, what what more can we do to study to to increase conversations? Should there be a group who's um, you know commissioned to look at this to um, find numbers we agree on in terms of what the costs are, the true costs in the system, um, the, the true impacts on families on all sides as they go through this process. So I think we may see the, the, the bill evolve in, in that direction in the last two weeks of yeah. the session.
2: I, I like the, the term you're using with an evolution in, in the process because it seems like that's how this conversation has been, um, has been re, um, reframed, is, is the notion that there's a, there seems to be a cultural momentum towards uh, getting rid of the death penalty, and some of that has to do with moral issues or issues of, um, yeah, of it being applied uh, um, unfairly, uh, and some of it has to do with issues of economics and just mm-hmm. the fact that we pay a whole lot more money um, to put someone to death than we do to imprison them for the rest of their lives.
0: What mm-hmm. uh, one of the bills, a bill that has evolved over the last uh, couple of, of years, uh, Dennis, is on transgender athletes. We talked about it on our program last year. A bill is sort of a sweeping bill a little less now uh, a bill that was that just came out this past week which which is which essentially establishes a commission that will look at these issues for a person who wants to play on a team uh, for a gender that doesn't ba- match their birth certificate
3: yeah th- that's a difficult issue no matter how you how you come at it and you know uh, was it last year governor cox said you know let's let's pull back on this i haven't heard him take a position on on this current iteration of that bill, um, but it's it's a difficult issue. I, I'm not sure if there's a way through it or not. It did pass the House though, hasn't it? Um, so uh, we'll see how it does in
0: the Senate. I, I, I really yeah. don't have a good gauge yet on, on where that's going. Okay, We'll continue to follow that one. Uh, one more, it's interesting connected to COVID, the what they're calling the vaccine passport amendment. So interesting, Kate, I wanna hear Maybe as an elected official, you may hear about this too. The legislature is saying private businesses cannot require proof of vaccinations for customers or employees. This
1: is this was a big bill uh, up on the hill this week um, to the point where you know it had a packed committee hearing. Mm-hmm. The overflow was packed. Um, you know, haven't seen that many people at the Capitol in in two years. Yeah, so it, it was it was a very large crowd. Um, it is, it is one of those where you know, the, the legislature took up this issue as recently as the November special session and, and, and put um, you know, some parameters in place, and this bill would remove those and change that system again. I think you know businesses. From what I'm hearing, they feel absolutely whipsawed. Like they they can't they just cannot win, no matter um, what industry they're in, no matter the size of their business. The rules change on them. Um, their ability to um, you know protect employees on you know that have compromised immune systems are at stake. Their ability to hire is at stake. Um, consumers are upset. Like business feels. I think like. Honestly, let us just have the flexibility to manage um, what we need to do on a business-by-business business case, and that's that's what they're asking for. The public clearly feels like the pendulum needs to swing the other way in in, in favor of personal freedoms. Um, you know, at the local level, I have almost no control over this issue, um, but I do I do get emails on yeah. it because it is so deeply and
2: viscerally felt. I, I uh, <clears throat> that's a really interesting comments there, and and I I also. Th- the question comes to mind, um, and I have, I have no idea what the answer is, but uh, there are a lot of people who have already left workplaces that have required this. Mm-hmm. If it suddenly becomes illegal to require this, what is there anything retroactive to those folks who uh, who mm. lost their jobs or left their jobs because they decided I'm not going to get vaccinated and my employer is requiring it? I, it's uh, yeah. it's a it's an issue that you say whipsawed. It's That's a, part of it. It's an
1: interesting one because the legislature uh, in the November special session said you can have a deeply held personal belief and that can be a reason not to get mm-hmm. vaccinated. And so. Um, you, what I find in this debate at the state capitol is that mix of what's happening at the federal level versus what's the yeah. law on the ground in Utah get, mm-hmm. get conflated. And so, uh, you know, there should not, for instance, have necessarily been a, a huge outflow of, of employees who, if they were able to state that deeply held personal belief, would have been... Like go from their job, but it is it is clear that it is deeply felt no matter which side you are on.
0: Yeah, Dennis, talk about that for a sec because our businesses are saying, what are we supposed to do now? Because there's been sort of this principle in Utah, you kind of don't tell businesses what what to do. Yeah, I, that that's that's been typical, like deregulation, right? Not not more regulation. This is
3: business regulation. Um, in a different way, but it's, it's regulation nonetheless. And I think, as as a whole, our legislature, our Republican-controlled legislature, wants less regulation on business, except for when it's an issue that they seem to care care about, like this one. And it has
0: a lot of uh, public uh, sentiment about this as well. Yeah, uh, I want to talk about a little, an infrastructure bill just because I think it's so interesting. Because uh, when. When I've been dealing with the legislature for a while and with with state government, you talk about all these electric vehicles, which is so interesting because we, mm-hmm. we we technically we pay our, we pay tax when we buy. Fuel. Yes. We put gas in our cars, mm-hmm. and for a long time, people have been saying, "Well, it's, you know, people who have electric vehicles are not really paying their fair share of the road upkeep." Well, there's a bill to to address that. This is from Representative Ray Ward, the Vehicle Registration Amendments. Max, talk about this kind of what this may give a signal for for the future. This is a $120 fee that, that goes when you register your car each year for, if you have an electric vehicle.
2: This is one of those two where where it's an issue that becomes a much bigger deal as electric vehicles are adopted more and more. You see a whole lot more Teslas and leaf and all these things on the road because um, when this was initially proposed I think a lot of people reacted and thought this is, um, that's, that's unfair these people are paying more for cars because they want to be environmentally friendly and they should there should be some reward for that um, but at this point what, what they would do is you'd either pay um, right up front with your registration an extra fee in order to if you have an electric vehicle and that's meant to offset what you will not be paying in gas tax the idea being that you you use the road as much as those other cars and the gas tax is what pays for those roads uh, so there's some there's sense to that and then there is an alternative where you could pay what is it uh, three cents a mile or something like that uh, if you don't drive much you can say i don't drive much and you can keep track of your miles and just pay that that amount and that would replace the gas tax i think there's more of a consensus that some kind of mechanism has to exist in order to pay for roads Connected to the environment,
0: uh, Kate, K, I thought well, there was an interesting conversation this last week about the Outdoor Retailer Show. Mm-hmm. You, you remember, uh, 2017, they left. There was an issue. Uh, There's some disagreement about the management of public lands, for example. It's so interesting. Just this week, we get into this issue again, whether or not uh, they would come back to the state of Utah, and the governor even weighed in on this.
1: Yes, it is interesting that they, you know, they've they've been hanging out in Denver. Um, you know, they've they've discovered what we always knew, right, mm-hmm. as Utahns, um, that you can get to our outdoors faster. Where, you know, Salt Lake is 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 closer, is closer to yeah. the yeah. airport. Salt Lake is closer. what everyone <laughs>
2: thinks Denver is. Exactly. Uh-huh. I have right. I have <laughs> I have
1: landed in Kansas and then had mm-hmm. to, to <laughs> go to Denver. Um, and, and so the outdoor retailers has discovered this in their in their sojourn to go find other places that they felt al- aligned. That that the venues are hard to get to if you're into outdoor sports and you're trying to showcase your gear. Um, so it looks like they might be considering coming back. Um, but they want us to know it's like it's like we've had this bad breakup, but then mm-hmm. they've decided, you know, <laughs> like like that they could come back. And they're like, we're coming back, but we're still upset about these things. And the governor, I think, gently reminded them, hey, if you want to come back and be part of that conversation, then you're you're in a spot to be part of the conversation. Was well, it gentle? Yeah. Well, well, he, he's, he, he's, he <laughs> We're still going through the breakup. Yeah. I
3: know. <laughs> he, he said we don't miss you, but we desperately want you back. We didn't. We didn't miss you, but please, you know, come back. He
1: did say both of those things, and that was kind of an mm-hmm. interesting uh, message. I think. I think, though, overall, the state would say. Yes, <coughs> come back. We, our, our Life Elevated brand is about the mm-hmm. outdoors, and you fit with us. And you can fit with us and have this discussion. And honestly, you might be surprised if you come back. We are having interesting conversations about the Great Salt yeah. Lake um, and about water and about conservation that we weren't having when you left. Maybe you want to be part of that conversation, and maybe that opens up doors for you to have conversations you want to have about Utah's views on federal land. But if you're not here, It's certainly hard for us to have these conversations. Are
3: there some bottom-line issues here, too, for these outdoor retailers? I think it's less expensive to be here in Salt Lake City than it is for Denver to, to put on your show, to show your wares. Um, so there's 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 a money
0: aspect to this as well. True. Uh, I want to spend our last uh, couple minutes, Dennis, talking about election security, uh, because we had some uh, some events this last week that have kind of given an indication where people feel how Utahns feel about it and whether or not they want to keep vote by mail, for example. But we've done some polling together. The Desert News, the Hinckley uh, Institute of Politics. Talk about that for just a minute. What we're finding about how Utahns feel about election security generally well our our last desert news hinkley institute
3: of politics poll showed that i think it was 80 percent of people think elections in utah are accurate and fair fairly conducted and so i i I don't see any reason to try to to alter what the state's been doing here it's it's been working vote by mail has been popular Um, it's it's it has been fair has been accurate it makes it convenient for people to vote
0: Mm -hmm. i think most like that option, and would want to keep it. Well, it, it seems that way. Uh, Max, there's a ballot initiative to try to get rid of that vote by mail. You know, yeah. with some of these securities at the heart of that, that failed when, without getting enough signatures this week.
2: Yeah, you know, it's um, it, it's just one of those issues that feels like a solution in search of a problem. That vote by mail has worked really well um, in Utah. It, it's uh, and it's gotten smoother as time's gone on. But there's a uh, there's been this uh, national ca- campaign, largely fueled by uh, the former president Donald Trump, to say that vote by mail is in essence uh, uh, it brings up the uh, increased response or increased possibility of fraud. Um, and that point has been pounded home pretty hard, uh, but it doesn't seem to, and I'm glad for your research, it doesn't seem to have been pounded home well in Utah. Mm-hmm. We still have a remaining bill in our last 30 seconds though, Okay, There
1: There is a, there is a bill to, um, you know, look at some of these underlying issues. Um, it's obviously being strongly protested by our Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson and the fact that her office is over uh, state elections. Um, you know, I think the broad feeling of the majority of the legislature is comfort with the election system and is comfort with the, the mail-in ballot system. And I think it's they feel that comfort because they're informed by their residents who also are not feeling um, this, this underlying concern about election security. And we were completely comfortable with mail-in voting before the pandemic <laughs> and then saw the absolute wisdom of it as we watched other states struggle to implement yeah. it, you know, while we were in crisis mode. Um, So, you know, I don't know that this issue is probably going to get traction this session.
0: Going to have to be the last word on that one. Thank you for breaking down the session for us. Fascinating as always. Thank you for listening to The Hinckley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.